You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you, let him take your tunic. Or let him sue, I'm sorry, let's try it again. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord for help as we begin our time in his word together. Father, you've revealed yourself to us in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, you have given us an eternal word. That for ears that have not been trained by your spirit, we don't understand. In our flesh, we look at what Jesus has told us and we just simply say, more rules, more law, we can't handle it. So Father, I ask that you would help us to understand your word through the Spirit. And that you would open up our ears and our minds and our hearts to to see this truth and this goodness and this righteousness that you've shared with us. So God, anything that I'm about to say that's going to get in the way of understanding, make me not say it this morning. Just speak to us from your word. We praise you. We trust you. We love you. Amen. Well, how many of you heard, you don't have to raise your hands. How many of you heard Jesus' instruction here in Matthew 5, 38 and following, and your first response is just defense? You respond defensively. You heard what he said, and your first thought is yes, but what about this? What about this? You want to find exceptions. Yes, turn the other cheek. But what about if I'm defending somebody else? Can I, can I own a gun? Can I defend my own house? Yes, give to the one who asks. But what if they're a drug addict? Yes, go the extra mile. But what if that's unjust? Or what if I have other more important responsibilities? That's how one of us, one group of us responds to this teaching. Another group of us just despairs. Right? We hear this instruction and we say, no way. I can't do that. I will never measure up to what Christ has asked me to do. So I'm not going to try. And then that despair either causes us to cheapen grace or to doubt our salvation or to doubt our faith or doubt the power of Christ's work. And another group of us are just deniers. If the Bible says it and we don't like it, that is, the teaching goes against our instincts, what do we do? We say, well, Jesus didn't really mean what he said. Maybe it's a teaching that was just for his culture or, or just for those people at that time or, or maybe something got lost in translation. We can't really be sure that what Jesus said he really meant. Either way, my Jesus would never ask something like that of me defending ourselves, despairing, denying. 
each of those are, are three ways, and I'm sure there's many more. Those are just ways that, that we respond to hard teaching. And, and none of those is the right response to what Christ has shared with us. In fact, all of these responses, and I'll be honest, mine was probably some combination of all three. All of these responses misunderstand what Christ is doing here in this passage. He's not giving us a new law. He's not giving law to us. He has fulfilled the law. The law's purpose has been met in him. Remember, he, he said to us several weeks ago, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The law was given to restrain us and to guard us and point us to Christ, but now Christ has come. And in Christ, we've been given the Spirit, and being indwelt by the Spirit, we can live out the righteousness of God without the law. When we defend ourselves with, with our yes, but what about we're looking for ways that we can try to be found righteous under the law. That's why we defend ourselves. In, in a desire to be righteous under the law, we look for loopholes. We look for exceptions and technicalities. And we make excuses to get out from under what we see as a strict demand. That's how the Pharisees treated the law, wasn't it? But we need to remember Jesus' teaching wasn't meant... To, to create more Pharisees. It wasn't meant to elicit a Pharisaical response in us. In fact, that's the response he's teaching against here. When we despair by giving up on obedience, we are again presuming that Jesus is, is putting a burden on us that we can't handle. Think about what that says about Jesus. Like he's giving us a teaching that we can't possibly obey. Like he's a loving but naive, foolish dad who doesn't know that newborn babies can't ride bikes and tries to get his newborn to ride a bike and the baby's just crying and falling over. And then he sees that he can't handle the burden, so he picks up the baby and just says, never mind, and, and he rides the bike instead. That's not what's going on here. That... The last response, the last wrong response is that one of denial. But when we deny Christ's instruction altogether, what are we, we're like the serpent, aren't we? The serpent tempting Eve. Did God really say? Yes, he really did. Jesus really did say these things, and they really are meant for his followers. For you and me. But how should we understand what he's teaching us? Do we take it at face value? Is there something else going on here? Well, well, to help us avoid these defend, deny, and despair type responses, it's good to take a closer look. And that's why we're here. Now we're going to look at, take a closer look at Jesus' instruction. And here's how we're going to do that. First, we're going to look at the Old Testament teaching that Jesus was, was referring to. Secondly, we're going to try to grasp how that teaching was being misunderstood or, or abused or misused. And then look at Jesus' positive instruction and ask, in light of who Jesus is, in light of the work that he has come to do, how should we respond to his teaching? How do we understand it? Let's start with that first section, the, the Old Testament instruction. Look at verse 38 with me. I think we have that here. 
Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, what's the context of this passage? When the nation of Israel was established, they were given laws and they were given penalties for breaking the laws. A lot like the way that our government has set fines and jail times for particular crimes. The first place we see this concept is way back in Exodus, Exodus chapter 21. Israel has just received the Ten Commandments and then a bunch of extra laws and penalties that help them enforce those commandments. And in Exodus 21 verse 22, there's this scenario that Moses gives us. What, what do you do if two guys are fighting and then something else happens? Let me read for you what Moses has written for us. Uh, Exodus 21 verse 22, you can follow on the screen. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out, but there's no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there's harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. In other words, if you kind of put it in English, if there's a huge Donnybrook and Joash in Jotham are going to blows and Jotham accidentally hits Joash's pregnant wife and she goes into labor because of getting hit and the baby's born and everything's okay. Joash has the right to to levy a fine or to sue Jotham. And if the city elders, basically Israel's version of judge and jury, if they approve the fine, then Jotham has to pay up without complaining. But if Joash's wife gets seriously hurt or if the baby dies that's what Moses is talking about then what should happen the passage says use the, that old law of retribution eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth if Joash's wife lost an eye then Jotham's eye gets plucked out if she lost a tooth or a leg which are different in their severity knock out his tooth or cut off his leg if she dies or the baby dies kill Jotham you see the retribution. We see this come up again in Leviticus. Several times in the Old Testament. In Levit- Leviticus 24, there's the story of a man whose mother is an Israelite and whose father is an Egyptian. The young man is not given a name. Moses just calls him son of the Israelite woman, Shelemeth. Well, this, if you can imagine it, this young man gets in a fist fight with another guy who happens to be a full-blooded Israelite. And as they're fighting, the son of a Shelemith gets so mad that he curses the other man using the Lord's name. Now, I just want to pause for a second. Do you ever get do you ever get the feeling that these Hebrews were kind of rough? <laughs> In Exodus, you've got these other two guys fighting so hard they don't notice a woman who's nine months pregnant standing right there. And, and the guy's fighting is almost so, apparently so normal that she doesn't even bother to stop what she's doing and get out of the way. And then here in Leviticus, you've got two different guys fighting so hard that the Lord himself has to get involved to resolve the issue. And here's what the Lord does. The the Lord tells Moses to arrest the man who had pronounced the curse using the Lord's name. They take the guy into custody, set him in the jail tent, and then the Lord continues to talk to Moses And he basically outlines for him all of the instances where capital punishment is necessary and when it's not necessary. And he tells them 
that for the most part, punishments, again, should be determined by eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And this happens again later on, but we won't go into that one. Part, part of the reason for this measure was, was to ensure fairness when punishments are, are being given out. So imagine this. If my ox cart gets loose and runs over your goat, I only owe you one goat, not 200 goats, and you don't get to kill me for my crime. The, the other purpose of this is, is as a deterrent. In Deuteronomy 19.20, another place where we see that eye for an eye principle come up, the Lord says, And the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any evil amongst you. See, the punishment given, which is supposed to be very just, it's, it's meant to, to stoke fear in the people. Enough fear that they would want to avoid breaking the law. In each of these cases, though, here's something that we need to understand. All of these cases are determined in a court. Not in somebody's home, not on the farm, not by a band of vigilantes. Trials in Israel always involved due process. That's where we get it from. If there's a lawsuit, it goes to court. If there's a criminal trial, it goes to court. And once guilt is determined, then the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle is how the courts would determine the punishment after that. What this law was not meant to do was satisfy our own desire for revenge. You hurt me, I'll hurt you back. You said something to me, I'm going to come back at you. You stole something from me, I'm going to steal something from you. You cheated on me, I'll cheat on you. That personal retaliation sense of justice that was never meant to be the intention of this law Leviticus 19.18 says you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself I am the Lord this is, this is a part of Old Testament law the love your neighbor, neighbor principle and to not take vengeance principle so Jesus isn't teaching something new here. Yet somehow retaliation rather than love had, had sort of become a way of life for a lot of folks. The people that Jesus is talking to, the people that are hearing him. Well, we do that too, though. If someone wrongs us, we want to fire back, don't we? We want to give them what they deserve, at least what we think they deserve. If someone offends us, we want to see them offended. We want to see justice served. And if no one else is going to deliver justice for us, we're going to do it ourselves. Think about how many movies you've seen where, where this idea of justice is played out. Every Western movie ever, right? It, Westerns have a way of stripping away all of the niceties of lawful governments and just courts and reasonable people and they give us just the, the rawness of this good versus evil dynamic. And there, there's a satisfaction, almost a sick satisfaction that we get in seeing justice played out there. The bad guy gets what's coming to him. That's why we still make these movies. That's why I still like these movies. We have a deep, insatiable desire to see justice served. 
And if the man in the white hat can't give it to us, well, then we're going to leave dissatisfied, aren't we? There's going to be just a sense of emptiness or lack of closure. Can you imagine a Western where everything the bad guy does is despicable and you hate him and you just want to see him get knocked off his horse and then he, he wins? He's the one who gets the pretty girl in the ranch? That would be a horrible movie. How the West was starring Tom Brady. <laughs> but what's Jesus saying here? The people who belong to his kingdom the poor in spirit, the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, they're not a people who seek revenge for themselves. In fact, we'll see, we aren't even to have our own interests in mind at all. Jesus' people are God-trusting and others-minded. It starts in verse 39. Look Look at the way that Jesus turns this on us. He says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. Now, before we get too deep into this, I want to point out, when he says the one who is evil, he does not mean Satan. Okay? James 4, 7 says very clearly, resist the devil. 1 Peter 5, 9 says, resist the devil. When Jesus says evil one here, he means the one who is against you. It's kind of a relative term. Basically, anyone who you personally decide is your enemy. What's interesting here is how Jesus shows us that in our hearts, we can make someone out to be against us just as evil when they ask us for a loan as when they slap us in the face. If we make everything personal, everything about us, then anyone whose goals are different than ours, we will make out to be our enemy. picking that up? If it's all about us and reaching our goals and accomplishing what we want to accomplish, then anyone whose goals are different is our enemy. They are the evil one to us. I think that's what Jesus is trying to show us here. So the overarching command is to not resist the one who's evil. And underneath that command, we get these four different scenarios where we're to work that out. What are they? Turn the other cheek, give up your cloak, go the extra mile, give to the beggar or loan to the borrower. Each with with sort of a diminishing sense of how evil that person really is. Let's look at that first one in, in the second part of verse 39. If if you're coming here and you're not a Christian, You've probably heard this verse before. Most people in the world who have any familiarity with Jesus Christ's teaching know this verse. Probably one of his most famous teachings. It says, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That's it. Now, if we were to read this as a new law, this would lead us to some really strange contradictions, wouldn't it? Like if this is a law that we have to follow all the time, what if I get struck on the left cheek instead of the right? What if someone spits on me? What if instead of a slap on the cheek, it's a punch to the chin? This could go on forever. How many variations of this could we look for if we're looking for exceptions to what we think is a law? 
But Jesus has not given us a law. I'm going to say this a thousand times this morning. He has not given us a law. This is an illustration of what our heart response is to be when we're insulted. This is a picture. This is kind of a lopsided analogy. It's weak. I know it, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. If, if Elias is playing basketball this year, if he's going to his basketball game and I say, son, play hard and have fun. And then he comes back and says, well, what if I miss a shot? Should that be fun? What if the ball gets stolen from me? How should that be fun? What, what if I have to foul someone? Should I enjoy fouling someone? Right? If I was making a law for him to follow, then all of those are legitimate questions. But if I'm instilling in him virtue, then those questions don't make any sense. That's similar to what Jesus is doing here. He's pressing upon us what an expression of a renewed heart looks like. A new heart is not bent on thinking of defending itself when it's insulted. A Christ-renewed heart instead considers this. Who am I in Christ? That's our first question. Who am I in Christ? You hit me in the face. And my first question is not, not even, has nothing to do with you. But who am I in Christ? Listen to the way that Peter puts it. 1 Peter four twelve through 16 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And look what he says here. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. When we turn the other cheek, all we're doing, what Jesus is telling us, is to identify with Christ's suffering. That's all that means. Identify with Christ's suffering. Think first of God's glory and not our own. What our heart response is to be. The second illustration is what to do in a lawsuit. Look at verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now to know the depth of what Jesus is teaching, we need to know more Old Testament law. A lot of us, I wasn't familiar with this, going into this week, so I'm going to assume you're not either. In the Old Testament, you never kept someone's cloak from them. Right? This is, you might loan your cloak out as collateral for borrowing my ox to plow your field, but I wouldn't be allowed to keep your cloak overnight. It's actually written in law. That cloak was likely your blanket, and it was your bed. It was your outer covering. It was it was like your most basic need. So a man had a right to keep his cloak, no matter what. You couldn't take it from him. And Jesus says, here, be willing to give that up. It deepens it a little, doesn't it? Be willing to give up even your most fundamental rights in order to make peace with the one who's suing you. This is that whole reconciliation thing we talked about several weeks ago. You remember when Jesus taught us about anger? And he said, if there's someone 
with something against you, stop what you're doing. Even if you're right in the middle of a worship service and go to that person and be reconciled. And this is taking that concept a step further. Be willing to even give up your cloak to see reconciliation happen. Be willing to give up the most basic fundamental rights that you have because reconciliation with your brother is more important than your stuff. Let's look at the third illustration, verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is where that go the extra mile, work the extra hour, that Protestant work ethic stuff comes from. But really it has more to do with how we submit to our government. We don't see that here, but contextually, we understand it. Back in early B.C. years, the Persian Empire had started this practice of conscripting farmers or, or people along the road to help them carry their burdens. And so if you're out working in your field with your donkey and the army is marching through, they could ask to have your donkey carry their gear with them for a ways, and you'd have to walk with them. It's kind of a, a labor tax of sorts. So after the fall of the Persian Empire and the rise of the Greek Empire, the Greeks did this too. And then the Greek Empire fell and the Roman Empire rose and they continued this practice. So for 500 some odd years, this was just a part of normal life. Well, Israel happened to be in occupied territory at this time. And so Roman armies frequently conscripted Jews to carry their burdens. Jesus is saying here, when that happens to you, go twice the distance that you're asked to go. Set aside your personal feelings for a minute, okay? And just think about the impact that this might have had on a soldier. We often don't think about that side of things. But think about the soldier for a moment. He is used to constantly having people argue and fight with him. Or huff and puff, or walk slow, or protest. Or just cause problems whenever... He's just doing his job and asking someone to carry the gear, to carry the burden. And who knows how long he's been walking. He hasn't seen his family in probably months. He's far away from his home. Think what it would be like for a Christ follower to serve him and to go twice as far as he asked. You see the impact there? What does that look like to him? What would that say to this man about our Savior, the one that we serve? We're supposed to be different, aren't we? This would be what different being different looks like. When everyone else is fighting and resisting, the Christians are supposed to be the people that go the extra mile. Now, you will probably not be asked to do this, will you? I never have. But think about how it would be if Christians were not nasty about the things that we're asked to do and did it willingly instead. Think especially in terms of our government. So if you, if you have to go to the DMV, which I've been, I still have my Washington license. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll get that fixed. <laughs> but if you have to wait at the DMV for six hours, that's why I haven't gone yet. And it turns out, you got the wrong paperwork. So you've waited all this time, and you get to the counter, and you've got the wrong paperwork. Don't take it out on the worker. Right? Be a blessing to them instead. 
if, if, you're, if you're at the airport, the TSA agent at the airport randomly pulls you out of the line for the 50th random time in your life, and you've already been waiting 40 minutes, you might miss your flight. You can protest, can't you? You can make a huge fuss. You can be impolite. You can just be a smart aleck about everything they ask you. Or you can just go out of your way to make their job easier. You see, just the the different scenarios, I can't think of all of them that we will be involved in. But there are times when we have to answer to the powers that be, the authorities over us. And the instruction here is be a blessing to them. The big idea that Jesus is getting at is that we are to submit to those who are ruling and not live like we rule over ourselves. We don't rule over ourselves. We're servants of Christ. Well, in that fourth illustration, in verse 42, Jesus says, Give to the one who begs from you. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What's he saying here? Give to every beggar on the street? At every stop sign, every street corner? Is he saying keep giving loans to people who never pay you back and who you know are are using money for things that are destructive to them? Again, like all of these other instructions, we could ask a thousand questions here and look for a thousand clarifications. But Jesus is not writing law for us. He's cultivating a heart attitude in us. Already, he's taught us to identify with him when we're insulted or when we're injured. He's already taught us to not think of our own rights, but to give up our rights for the sake of reconciliation. He's already taught us to submit to, to be a blessing to those who rule over us. Now he's saying with our money, with our possessions, don't squeeze tight. Don't hold on tight to those things. Listen to how Paul explains this same principle in 1 Timothy. I didn't put this one on the screen. If you want to write it down, it's 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. Paul tells his younger brother in the Lord, As for the rich in this present age, charge, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See how Paul puts it? Be generous and ready to share. Why? Because our hope's not in our riches. It's not in our stuff. Our hope. If, if our hope is in our money, think about it. If our hope is in our stuff, in our money, then anyone who asks for our money is seen as a threat to us. There are enemies. Any friend who asks for a loan, and our hope is in our money, well, he's a threat to us. He's an enemy. He's the evil one. He's just as evil as the guy who sues us. He's just as evil as the soldier who forces us to walk a mile. He's just as evil as the man who slaps us in the face. Why? Well, because our hearts that cling so tightly to our stuff and our honor and our freedom, 
Everyone who wants our stuff or insults our honor or threatens our freedom, all of those people are our enemies. They're all evil to us. So right off the bat, Jesus says, don't resist the one who's evil. In other words, don't trust your instincts because your instincts are selfish. In each of these four illustrations, Jesus has stripped away every aspect of our lives where we find any sense of self-reliance, any sense of self-worth or self-importance or self-rule. That's why we look at this teaching and say, Jesus, this is what I said this week. Jesus, if I were really to obey you here, there would be nothing left of me to defend. You're asking me to give up my possessions, to give up my freedom, to give up my rights, to give up my honor. And Jesus says, exactly. That's what it means to follow me. In order to obey Christ, we have to die to ourselves. We give all of those things up and look to him. In ourselves, we think we have a right to defend ourselves against someone who insults us or injures us. Jesus had that right. He was slapped. He was spit upon. We, we think we can defend our rights according to the law. Jesus could have fought for himself. He could have defended his rights. He was unjustly accused, and yet he willfully gave up his cloak literally, and his tunic when they stripped him naked and they beat him. And he did that so that you and I could be reconciled to God. We think we don't have to submit to governing authorities, especially unjust or wicked or corrupt, overtaxing governing authorities. Jesus willfully accepted the penalty of death unjustly imposed on him by governing authorities. We think we have a right to our own stuff. That no one has the right to ask us for our hard-earned money. That nobody has the right to even ask a loan for us from the things that we worked hard for. And yet the eternal Son of God was in heaven in perfect unity with the Father. In heaven. And he did not count the riches of heaven or his equality with God, something to be held on to tightly. Instead, he gave it all up to take the form of a servant, a slave, a nobody. He gave all that he had to be a homeless person with nowhere to lay his head. And in that selflessness, he gave himself to you and me. Our biggest problem isn't the people who hit us or oppress us or insult us or ask us to do things or annoy us. Our biggest problem is us. Ourselves. And without Christ's work on the cross to free us from ourselves, we're stuck with hearts that could never possibly live the way that he's instructing us to live never but praise God Jesus did die for us and he rose again and he's given us his spirit and by his spirit 
we can die to ourselves and be raised to new life in Him. All of this that Jesus wants from us can be lived out in accordance with the Spirit's work in us. The Spirit in us, we can live for God's glory and not our own. The Spirit in us, we have a light that brightly shines through us before others so that we may, they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who's in heaven. That's what Jesus said several chapters, or not even several chapters ago. Same chapter, chapter 5. That's his whole point here. That this following him isn't about us. Before we even begin the journey in following Christ, we die to ourselves. And we leave our bodies in the baptistry. And we follow him living a life that does not defend itself. Because we know we don't have to. Because Christ has taken everything. So all we have is what we have in him now. Let's pray. Father, what a picture you've given us of something very not human. We thank you for these illustrations that our Savior has shown us of what it looks like to be in his kingdom, to be his followers, to people who have taken up our cross to follow him. Father, help us to see that Christ's instruction is not a burden. Help us to see that his instruction isn't more weight, more law, more difficult things to do in our lives, but freeing. Oh, that we would see our Savior as the one who frees us, not the one who burdens us, as the one who died for us so that we could live in him. We thank you for Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.